Welcome to the Swap Witch Podcast. My name is Brandon Leday. Hi, I'm Allie. And I am Boomer. And this is potentially the last Land Yap recording of the year. I have some like pre-recorded conversations that I've been like plugging in. The scheduling is getting very weird in this last month of Swamplex episodes. We're even recording this episode early, so things that might be like a fresh, up-to-date take in our minds by the time it's reaching your ears is stale and old and leftovers, and no one wants to hear it anymore because the discourse yeah. moves quick. But we're gonna do our best. I have a lot of like big ticket items. You know, December is full of new movies that like okay. Last time we talked, Allie was like, it seems like um, there really hasn't been much of interest coming out this year. And I think the answer to that conundrum is just that every interesting movie has been crammed into December. And yeah. it's just like too much to catch yeah. up with now. But we're going to do our best with the limited time we have together. Allie, have you been watching movies in the catching up with the best of the year tradition or otherwise? Um, I've been watching things that have caught my interest have tickled my fancy so i finally got around to watching the uh amazing movie that is inuo one of the best movies of last year yes one of the best movies of last year and i loved it it's so good so inuo is this uh psychedelic anime rock opera that's like based in history and also fantasy and stuff and it's about this boy Tomona or Tomoichi or Tomoari like he he gives himself a lot of names and uh he is struck blind by a cursed object and he learns to play uh well it's not gosh why can't I ever think of the name of this room it's not like a lute it's not a zither yeah, it's a guitar like um, instrument yeah, it's uh oh Biwa. Yeah, so he starts um becoming a monk with these people who uh collect the stories of this one historic battle. Um along his way, he meets this uh cursed kid who is cursed by the spirits of this battle and um this cursed kid can dance real good. He can play the Biwa real good. They team up and uh entertain the land. Um and so it's kind of a uh, fun historic like that inspired by like both traditional Japanese music and glam rock. Um anyway, I loved it. It's so good. And then, you know, there's like this really really interesting um like queer subtext to it that I found absolutely fascinating because, yeah, uh, of course it did. I'm like, this movie feels a little gay. I think this movie's a little gay. And then the ending is especially, anyway. There's also a lot of, like, gender fluidity. Like the yes. Kind of like you were saying, like it's a glam rock opera. So, like, the more they become these rock star personae, like, the less masculine they present to the public. Uh-huh. And that allows them to be more you know touchy-feely with each other it's it like kind of goes yes. beyond being friends yeah they're they're roommates possibly this was my number two movie of last year after neptune frost i, I don't think anybody else saw it in time for our like yeah. best of the year voting but but yeah it is great it is great i what i really appreciate about it too is like it's not just this like celebration of like queer outsider artists it's also like pretty level-headed about what that means and how it attracts like fascistic blowback from the status quo. So yeah. like there are these like really beautiful animated sequences where these two men like oh. 
transform and transgress and yes. you know become something even more beautiful than they were before they discovered like basically prehistoric rock and roll and then yeah <laughs> the more famous they get for transgressing the more the sort of like biwa priests higher up the food chain take notice and then shut them down very violently and it's yeah. got this kind of like grim historical view of like how queer artists who don't fit in a you know very tidy box that basically makes people money uh, mm-hmm. get shut down in a, in a sort of violent response from the higher ups. Yeah, it's very much about like people only think weirdos are cool when they're like profitable, essentially. Right. Odes well for all of us, right? <laughs> yeah, so I really enjoyed that one a whole lot. It's a beautiful, beautiful movie. Just made me happy, even with all the sad fascist blowback parts and then i watched um a less good movie but it is from this year um i watched it's a wonderful knife which is like super kitschy in a lot of ways and it's also kind of it's got like a little bit of like cw vibes i feel like like a little like kind of teen drama vibes i've started to notice a whole generation of Filmmakers who are obviously raised on the CW and the Disney Channel, sort of echoing oh those aesthetics yeah. just sort of naturally because that's what they grew up watching. And it mm-hmm. makes me feel so old and so curmudgeonly. Oh, that makes Especially sense. when it comes to like the tender queer, like transgressive horror stuff. It's like, this should not look like a sitcom for a major production studio. It shouldn't, no. But it does. I tried to explain it to my friend as like, for people who like the gayest parts of trashy Riverdale episodes and also Christmas and also slashers, which sounds like it would be my sort of thing, but ultimately it's just kind of eh. Like, it's a fun-ish movie. Like, you know, I'm sure if you got together with, like, friends and decided to watch a horror comedy, it's, um, it's fun in that way. I don't know. It's kind of just like a light horror comedy it's nothing to write home about but like i don't regret watching it it's got that kitsch that you know you either hate or like it's basically uh sort of the plot of it's a wonderful life except there's a murderer and yeah the main character when she becomes unborn has to kill the murderer before she can get back to her own life it sounds a little bit like a happy death day that sort of like resettable scenario where there's like family trauma and like stuff she has to like work out through violence but it's a metaphysical thing outside of time yeah pretty much do you feel like we're getting a little spoiled with how much just like teen slasher content is made all the time and all these different streaming platforms like i hardly get excited by anyone that gets singled out as a novelty anymore we might we might be there's that totally killer one a few right with weeks um, ago. what's her name that i you know it was like uh, it just went past in the river so quickly yeah there is an oversaturation issue where it's like you barely have time to absorb one before there's another one there were those ones on netflix last year that were like three stories across different centuries it was like witch trials and then 80s slasher and then current oh it was a uh, fear street oh, yeah. right yeah, yeah it was like, sweet. I don't want to sit down and watch a nine-hour slasher. Like, y'all can keep that. <laughs> <You know? laughs> too much. Yeah, that is too much. It, it has to be 90 minutes or under. 
um, for a slasher. I'm going to be honest. Um, and this one is pretty much a tight 90. So there is that going for it. Anyway, yeah, that's what I've been watching. Uh, Boomer, you've been watching anything cool and nice and fun? Yeah, um, I've been out to the movies a couple of times since we last met. I did go and see Eli Roth's new slasher Thanksgiving on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. Um, that one is a tight 90. And while it has its moments, um, and there are some really nice like misdirects as far as like red herrings, I would not recommend it first and foremost because Spyglass Features is spineless. And therefore, uh, if I had known going in what I knew like the following day about uh, certain people being kicked off of certain projects and certain people who would make money from my ticket sale being Zionists, I probably wouldn't have seen it. Uh, but even if you are going to consume it ethically, by which I mean um, illegally downloading it and torrenting at some point in the future, it's still nothing to really write home about. Um, it's kind of unbelievable that it got a release as a feature film. There's a lot of it that looks good. It's pretty well edited. The opening sequence is great. Um, the plot of this one is that at the beginning of the movie, um, multiple people are maimed, uh, injured, and in some cases killed during like a completely overrun Black Friday event that actually opened on Thanksgiving Day at this um, Walmart-esque store um, in the uh, Massachusetts area, in Plymouth, uh, rather. And following that, someone is getting revenge on all of the people who were part of the stampede or who otherwise aided and abetted it. Um, the following year under the guise of John Carver, who was like the founder of Plymouth. And so they're in a pilgrim outfit as they go around and perform these killings. Um, it would have been better if the killings were more consistent. Like they weren't all Thanksgiving themed, which would have been fun. Uh, one of them is like a woman gets cut in half by like the lid of a dumpster falling on her. Like she's made of balsa wood. And then the bottom half of her body is put on like a half off sale sign and it's like, okay, it's going for a half-off thing, but it just makes it like conceptually inconsistent where not every horror has to be, but this one would have benefited if it had all been Thanksgiving-themed killings. Um, there are a couple of really great bits where like one of the um, supposed killers or one of the potential killers is this kid whose basketball, his professional basketball career was cut short before it could even get started because his arm gets broken during the stampede. And at one point when you're in the killer's lair, there are a bunch of baseballs that fall out of a like a locker whenever someone is being pursued by the killer in their lair. So, you know, they're it's it's elegantly done as far as the planting and payoff with regards to like red herrings and who the killer actually is. But uh, this should not have been a feature film. This should have been an episode of Into the Dark on Hulu. That's where it belongs, and that's like the quality level that we're talking about. You know, that's the same with It's a Wonderful Knife. It should have been on Hulu after dark. Yeah, you should have just gotten like that IFC Midnight, you know, logo before it, and then I would have been much more satisfied. But again, I would not recommend it. Surprisingly, I would recommend The Marvels, the new Marvel movie that I went and saw. Um, there are a lot of people online complaining about how this one's going to be completely impenetrable because you have to have watched all the movies and two seasons of a show and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, I'm not going to carry water for Disney, but to their credit, Marvel movies aren't like that. They don't actually require you to have that much knowledge normally. And this one was very good about disguising its exposition. 
um, that it did have about who everybody was in a way that made the movie feel fine and it, it flowed properly. And it, you know, these movies have gotten so dark and dour and um, when they try to be funny so often, they just fall really flat. Whereas this one, the comedy was, uh, I enjoyed it, you know, and uh, we went with, uh, a few of us went and as we were leaving, Kat was talking about how much she enjoyed that, like, there wasn't a forced romance subplot because those get shoved into these a lot. But because it's just about, like, three women working together, one of them, like, a teenager, that it, you know, was able to completely, like, forestall that possibility of that being a part of this plot. And um, I enjoyed it, you know. Uh, nothing great, you know. It's not approaching the levels of, like, when this franchise was at its height. Uh, when it was at its most hyped. But, you know, it's a perfectly acceptable superhero movie that, you know, is never going to make back its budget because the budgets have gotten bloated completely out of control. But, you know, that's not really a metric for how good a movie is. It's just a metric for what its box office performance is. Can I derail you for a second here? Sure. With something um, perhaps unfair, but I'm I'm thinking about when I was uh, posting your review on the site. And uh, the last couple Marvel movies you mentioned in the review were like Spider-Man, whatever the multiverse one was, right. uh, with all the Spider-Men and then uh, guardians of the galaxy three, which came out earlier this year. And in both cases, you were kind of like downplaying them. Like, you know, the guardians one's very dour and serviceable. And then the Spider-Man one is like nostalgia propaganda. Yeah. And it was just funny, like going back and reading the linked reviews to those, statements and they're like the reviews are very positive and you had a great time watching the movies and like i'm just wondering if there's something about like the in the theater experience for these that's like still super pleasurable for you and then listening to everyone talk about them just makes you like look back on them less favorably than when you walked away from the end credits or something there's a possibility of that uh, I will say that I saw Ant-Man in the theaters and I hated that. <laughs> and that was also earlier this year, Quantumania. True, that one true. I hated. And again, with Guardians of the Galaxy, the things that I enjoyed about it, I was delighted that you had the same feelings about. Because, you know, we talked about this when um, when I saw it and then when you saw it, which is that I think that the movie is like kind of tongue in cheek with all of its absurdly cute animal characters that meet horrifying ends like to me a little bit of a troll job yeah yeah whereas like everybody that i talked to in real life was like oh i was so touched by you know the rabbit creature and the otter creature and i'm like oh okay maybe i just misread this movie completely (laughs) and then when you watched it you had the same feeling and i felt so vindicated um you know there are so many of like i some i haven't bothered to see i didn't see love and thunder i didn't see shang chi I watched The Eternals out of morbid curiosity, and it is genuinely the worst thing that this franchise has done (laughs) outside of possibly The Inhumans, which I also didn't see. And then Doctor Strange, I didn't even feel like writing it up, but that one, again, I only saw because it was a Sam Raimi movie, not really because I was all that interested in Doctor Strange. Okay, maybe I'm picking the least two representative examples. I was just just wondering, like, if the discourse was dragging you down and made me really sad. I don't want you to not enjoy the movies anymore, you know? Right. When and they're enjoyable. I, I appreciate your appreciation of that. And I appreciate your like desire for me to um, have joy in my life. <laughs> um, yeah, we want you to have where I'm coming so from. joy. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, uh, the thing about the uh, Hot Twink Spider-Man, Too Many Spider-Twinks is like that movie is... 
just like it's just nostalgia propaganda and i will admit that like it worked on me in the theaters when i saw it or actually i didn't see it in a theater i saw it at a drive-in um because it was like still early 2022 um and that one like i enjoyed but i i could see on the face of it that it was like you know uh, blatant you know nostalgia poisoned propaganda like it was just oh hey you know all of these properties we own them all now and now we're gonna bring them all together but yeah no i you're not wrong because i am eternally haunted by what a positive review i gave to the first captain marvel even though looking back at that one it is such um air force propaganda even even when it's like trying to disguise that it is that like I saw uh join the army, you know, Ivan Etniage like promo before that movie even played when I saw it in theaters. And I enjoyed it at the time, but looking back, I don't know what I was thinking. It's fine. But do you think you'll be able to hold on to this positive feeling for its sequel as the years go on? Or do you think like a little Air Force propaganda or a little bit of like audience pandering will like start to sour you on it in retrospect? Only time I don't want tell. that for you, you know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm trying to break yeah. you free from this. <laughs> we want to preserve preserve your happiness and your innocence from the discourse. I guess this recording is the preservation. Like this good this good feeling you have now, which I'm already poisoning myself in real time and I regret even bringing it up. But <laughs> you know what? I think I hated this movie actually. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Now that you mention it, um, yeah, it is sort of like these um, these star ratings and these reviews get frozen in time, and I continue to grow and change, hopefully for the best, but not always. And sometimes I do get a little bit more negative about them after time, um, but that's life, right? Yeah. Uh, at yeah. least, uh, to be honest, it's better for me to look back and be like, mm, I enjoyed that movie, but it wasn't great. Than to look back on something that was mediocre and then like praise it and try and, you know, talk about engage with the discourse as a defender of something that has not withstood the test of time. I will say we have gone back and edited one or two and I'm literally saying like one or two star ratings like later, but it never it's never to downgrade them. We've always been like, you know what? I was hedging my bets a little bit. I was being a little meek. That deserved an extra half star than what I gave it. Yeah, I'll I'll reveal to the audience what one of them was because it was at my request, <laughs> which was that when I initially reviewed Tenebre, uh, Dario Gento's Tenebre many years ago, I gave it a four and a half. And that has also haunted me to the point where Brandon and I were texting about it a couple months ago. And he was like, no one will know if I just go in and upgrade it to a five star review. Right. No one will know. And so we did. Yeah. So that one, that one's on me. But again, yeah, we don't, I don't think but we've now ever we downgraded anything. No, I mean, we, we go to movies wanting to like them. It's not like you went to the Marvels yeah. with your arms folded being like, what is this feminist propaganda, you know, looking for content yeah. for the MRA Reddit minds. Right. And you know what? I'll say it. I like Brie Larson. I don't care who knows it. I actually find her really charming. <laughs> I know that she's not always been like the best public figure, but uh, you know, she's also been held to an impossible standard, mostly yes. in bad faith. Yeah. I liked her on that Tony Collette show when she was a teenager. That was what that was what uh Kat was talking about whenever we were watching the Alamo Draft House pre-show. She was like, she was good in that. Yeah. To me, she will always be Envy Adams in Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Like she won me over with that kind of forever. Um, that and her like occasional appearances on community where she was really great in that too. We're rooting for you, Brie. We are. Yeah, we are. We are. And Tayana Paris. I, I love her. She was great on Mad Men. 
She was really excellent in They Clone Tyrone, which I watched earlier this year. And is I agree with that. Yeah. Really high up on my list of, you know, the movies that came out this year. Probably the best performance in that movie, I want to say. I would completely agree. I would 100% agree. She is the most magnetic thing about that movie. Not that the other actors and performers aren't great, but she really brings a lot to a role that's intentionally written to be sort of downplaying her intelligence from the start. Yeah. You know, I love that she's getting a paycheck. Anytime I like somebody and I see that they're in a movie, even if I don't like it, I'm like, you know, get that back. You know, Uh, if we're going to talk about the Marvel's scorecard of like the women's previous work, Thoughts on Nia DaCosta's Candyman? Positive, negative? You know, I actually didn't see it. I liked positive it. Positive for me. I Very liked good. it. Yeah. And man, they have really been throwing her under the bus yeah. since this movie came out. And that is really not fair. To not invite this woman to the premiere of her own movie and then pretend like she snubbed it. That is some like craven ass bullshit. What? I didn't know that happened. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, my God. Because the premiere was like near her birthday and she texted some people to be like, hey, come hang out for my birthday. And they were like, are you not going to the premiere of the Marvels? Oh, my God. Wow. And then, yeah. And of course, Variety, just like, you know, just like they've been continuing to support uh, through omission and through disinformation. They've supported both like the studios over the strikers this whole year. And as they continue to support uh, (laughs) through omission and again, through lies and propaganda, um, the ongoing genocide in Gaza, um, they also took the side of Bob Iger when he was like, oh, she didn't come to the movie. So, yeah, yeah. that's that's fucked. So because this one's underperforming, they're already trying to throw her under the bus, even though like nothing that is wrong with this movie is her fault. In fact, I don't think that there's that much wrong with this movie. And I think she brought like a real fresh vision to it as much as she was able. Um, The other uh, release from this year that I've watched since we spoke last and also that I uh, put out copy on was David Fincher's The Killer. Have either of you watched it since it came to Netflix last week? I watched it. What did you think? I did not like it. <laughs> okay. The fir- the opening 20 minutes, great gag. Very funny in concept. Maybe in execution, a little one note, which I guess my entire thought of the movie is like, after that gag happens, like the rest of the movie's kind of a waste of time. And uh, yeah, it just gets, keeps hitting the same note over and over again. The narration's very repetitive and overbearing. And the whole time I was watching it, I was thinking like, this would have been a great movie if Steven Soderbergh directed it, making fun of David Fincher. David Fincher <laughs> lightly ribbing himself, but not going far enough to make it an outright comedy is like really holding it back. You know, I can't say that I disagree. Like, you know, it was it was a it was sort of a middling Fincher for me. It's definitely more of like a panic room Fincher than like a seven Fincher. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, in the sense that like that opening gag I really enjoyed. And I seem to be having a different reading of it than most of like the discourse that I'm seeing online. Most people seem to be taking it at face value, which to me is like, oh, then you're exactly who this movie is making fun of. Um, Ali, since you haven't seen it, the plot of this one is that Michael Fassbender is this like assassin. It's split up into six discrete chapters, almost like a short miniseries almost, where he attempts an assassination in Paris and misses. Uh, And then in chapter two, he escapes Paris and goes back to the Dominican Republic where he has been living and discovers that um, his home has he's experienced a home invasion 
and his wife or girlfriend was seriously injured. In the third chapter, he tracks down his handler and gets some information about the two assassins that attacked his home. In the fourth chapter, he goes to Florida and um, kills one of them. And in the fifth chapter, he goes to New York and kills the other, who's played by Tilda Swinton. And then in the uh, sixth and final chapter, he confronts the client who set him up for the original um, assassination at the beginning. And each of them works in their own way. I do, I, I, I do want to ask Brandon. There is a jab at New Orleans in this one, and it, I, I laughed at it, even though I think it's only eighty-five percent true. Did that color your perception at all? Was the joke like city of a thousand restaurants, but they're all the same restaurant or something like that? I'm trying to remember. Yeah, he what says it was. New Orleans, a city of a thousand restaurants with one menu. Ah, yeah, that's pretty funny. Yeah, I, I it's not true at all, but it's kind of funny. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's, it's a city it's of two thousand restaurants with four menus. I mean, here's the thing: there are <laughs> there are restaurants that have not changed since the eighties. Yes, right. We're probably earlier. Well, yeah, but there are people who remember a very like specific time in the city's culinary history that if you change anything on the menu, they get mad at you. Like they don't yeah. want it to change and evolve. Oh yeah, I remember when Hurricane Elizabeth came through, and that Hurricane Elizabeth being the name Elizabeth was the name of that um, writer who was like, they don't even have kale. Right. Yes. That yes. discourse. So if you are someone like David Fincher who travels the world and when you're in New Orleans, your handlers are like, we looked it up and you absolutely have to go to Commander's Palace yeah. and uh, Galatoire's or whatever else. And yeah, you'll probably have the same meal three different times while you're here. Right. But that doesn't mean the city isn't like overflowing with the best restaurants in the world and constantly has turnover of all kinds of new restaurants all the time. So like, yeah, definitely a tourist view of the city. But also it works in the context of the movie in that the narrator is wrong about everything he says all of the time, which is yes. kind of part of the joke. Right. And it's a joke that works as being accurate if you have a very surface level understanding and a joke that works as revelatory about the assassin's pretensions if you have a deeper understanding of anything, like just about everything in this movie, like you said. He's a know-it-all who knows nothing. <laughs> you know? Exactly. And a lot of people don't seem to be interpreting the text that way. Some people, you know, and I get that there are moments in which he is demonstrated to be like extremely capable. Um, he takes a beating real well in Florida, but he he's constantly citing these facts and statistics and like things that he quote unquote knows and basically, all he has is just like a lot of money, decent operational security as far as like his devices. And then the rest of it is just nonsense that he's constantly spouting. And every time that he tries to be smarter than he is, he's instantly proven wrong. And it does seem like the kind of movie that's made to indict, or it does seem like a film that's made to indict the kind of fandom that crept up around. Fight Club and Zodiac and even Seven about like, look how cool this person that you're actually supposed to recognize is like awful is. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's just not ultimately like a very funny joke because it, I guess it just doesn't go far enough for that to like really dig into full on satire. It, it's yeah. like you're saying it can be interpreted two different ways. But another way of saying that is like it's kind of on the fence and like doesn't really fully commit to one idea or the other. I, yeah, I mean, I think that not everything that is deliberately ambiguous, that is the case for, but you're not wrong about this one. And I appreciate that once again, like Guardians 3, you and I have the same reading um, that is not the one of the mainstream and maybe just wrong. 
<laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I mean, I'm okay living in a bubble. Yeah. Um, the other night we had a movie night at a friend's house, and after some discussion of what we were going to watch, we ended up watching A Fish Called Wanda from 1988. Um, is that a favorite among this group? Yeah, it's a perfect comedy. You know, Allie. I don't think I've seen it, actually. Oh, Allie, you would love it. Well, no, yeah, you would love it. I probably would. There, It does have its moments that are a little dated. Kevin Klein uses the F slur multiple times. Um, he's he's pretty ableist in his like uh, cruelty to one character as well. Yeah, and you know, I guess probably the other quote unquote trigger warning we would want to use is that there is comical Looney Tunes style violence against animals at multiple points in the movie. None of it <laughs> is realistic enough to be troubling. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a there's a dog that gets squashed under like a safe, and it's just That's like so it's like something out of Top Secret. It doesn't look it's okay, not okay. horrifying. It's like ridiculous looking, and it's great. Yeah, I mean. Kevin Klein in that movie, like one of the funniest performances ever on screen. He won an Oscar for that one. Deserved. And yeah, deserved, I would say. Uh, John Cleese, you know, before he completely lost his mind, he's really great in it. Before he fully became Basil Fawlty, yeah. Yeah, and it's it's so bizarre. I, I do want to say this for a second. It's so bizarre that in um, The Meaning of Life, there's the scene in the hospital where a baby is born. And they're like, is it a boy or a girl? And John Cleese's character, I think, is even the one to be like, oh, I think it's awful soon to start pushing gender expectations on it, considering that he himself is like a turf now. Yeah. It's sort of a really strange, like, when you were younger and funnier, you understood, like, how to, you know, make this comedy about gender that doesn't punch down. And now all you can do is tell sad old jokes that are not only not funny, but only funny to bigots. I don't want to say that transphobia is like worse in Britain than it is in the U.S. right now, because both countries are pretty rabid about it. But that particular brand of brain worms has seemed to reach celebrities a lot quicker there than it has here. One hundred percent. Older comedians weighing in on the topic who have like I no relation say, to that in their lives. It seems like they. It seems like a whole different crowd there too. You know, like here it's like religious bigots for the most part i know there's there's some turfs out there but there it's just like almost entirely like turfy it's like seen to be intellectual to be yeah for some reason yeah it's like a a leftist quandary there where you're like why why is this even a debate whatever yeah and who's to say you know a huge part of it is that like they've managed to get the most prolific English author of the past 30 years to fully buy in on their hate. Um, just by like appealing to her, you know, her worst tendencies, but also like her trauma, um, not to give her an out or anything, but you know, some people learn and grow from something like that and, Mm -hmm. you know, learn to be more empathetic. And she has done the worst possible thing with like what, you know, she could theorize could be the worst thing that could happen and just like made it her whole personality. You know, who's to say if like uh, Stephen King, you know, sort of an equivalent um, mainstream figure uh, also started espousing these hateful views, if that wouldn't be kind of the same in America. It's that she is such a huge part of the public consciousness and she has been so rabid in her transphobia that it's made it seemingly more um, socially acceptable there in ways that it has not become here yet. And one would hope never will. I guess to 
to to segue from gender fuckery back to a fish called Wanda, there is a scene in this where Jamie Lee Curtis, who is so sexy in this movie, she's like playing a getaway driver and she she's disguised with a mustache. And it really made me question some things. Um, <laughs> Jamie Lee Curtis with a mustache. I was like, oh, am I am I into this? Um, <laughs> but yeah, for our listeners, it's a movie about a jewelry heist that is then followed by all of the different individuals who are part of that heist trying to get to the jewels after um, framing a singular party uh, who was the one that moved them. And this also involves um, Jamie Lee Curtis trying to seduce John Cleese, who is the barrister for um, the defendant who they have framed so that she can try and, and figure out where the jewels are. And it's very slapstick at points. It's very comical. Kevin Klein's best scene is when he does this prolonged uh, hysterical um, humping of Jamie Lee Curtis and then lets out, he, he makes an O face that lasts like 12 seconds and it shifts from like face to face. It's, it's truly a sight to behold. Him speaking fake Italian to get her riled up is pretty funny too. Oh, mozzarella, pesto, parmigiano, reggiano. <laughs> yeah, I, I would give that one a big recommendation. I haven't seen it since... I was like 18 or 19. I saw it as uh, part of a reading film as literature class that I took at LSU. So you are correct. It is academically recognized as one of the most perfect screenplays, if not one of the most perfect comedies of all time. Uh, And finally, when it comes to most perfect movies of all time, I saw another movie that I had not seen uh, since I was in high school. Although uh, this one I saw, you know, several dozen times in my youth. But last night we watched uh, E.T. Oh, what are our thoughts on E.T. around these parts? I love E.T. and E.T. has always been adorable to me. And um, seeing him go through all of the like illness and stuff, like truly one of those things that makes you cry as a child that you like hold on to for life. In my opinion. <laughs> agreed. Agreed. I think people forget that Spielberg like is a terror to children. He's such a terror to children. <laughs> he makes these like oh awestruck movies where like people look at beautiful, unfathomable things just above their eye line while these like this very particular stage lighting that he invented for his Amblin era stuff. Like uh-huh. he is a stylist that makes you forget just how fucked up his movies are and like just like the way that like even like adult men are shot from like the waist down in this movie and they're these yes. kind of like foreboding like creeps in the woods and yeah the medical stuff with ET in the tent oh was like God. all emaciated and turning gray cuz uh-huh. the blood's leaving his body like yeah it's a, it's a fucked up movie and you know i think he's at his best when he's at his meanest cuz that's like his actual default mode yeah like it's it's these movies that like you're like oh okay i can see why steven spielberg has had such staying power okay i can understand i think this one and ai are the ones that really like try to rip your heart out of your chest yes oh my god ai made me cry so hard i was so mad at thomas because he was like oh you haven't seen it it's really good and then i was like why didn't you tell me it was a sad movie (laughs) very sad unlike et though no one's gone back and um ruined ai with like extra cgi to like try to update it to modern times oh my god yeah. and every every copy of et i get from the library these days whenever i'm like rewatching it for something is like the 2000s fucked with version with this like this hideous right false history 
I will not uh, recommend Amazon for any reason, but I will say the Prime version, the version on Prime, is not fucked with. Good. It has oh, the guns. It has oh, the good. lines. That was the funniest one, is like editing the guns out. Yeah. Um, I can understand the studio desire to do that. And I know Spielberg took the blame for it, but I'm 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 sure it was a studio note um to make sure that it could keep its PG rating upon re-release in two thousand two. Yeah. Like I'm I'm certain that that was the reason why. I will say I had never seen this movie in widescreen before. I had only ever watched this on that same VHS tape that I assume everyone had in their homes. Yeah. Um, when we were growing up, the one with the green flapper bar over the tape, uh-huh. the anti-piracy one. I love this movie. I will say I think it's Spielberg's best work. I won't. I don't. You know, I haven't seen every single thing that he's made. I ain't seen War Horse. I'm never gonna see War Horse. I haven't seen that, and I'm not going to. But like this, and like First Encounters, like come on. <laughs> Close Encounters is great, but there is something that is actual magic about E.T. Like, it yes. really does not, it does not feel like a movie. It feels like a fable. It feels like a journey that you go on. It feels like something that happened inside of your heart. It is genuinely one of the most beautiful pieces of film that I have ever seen. I had not seen it in so long, and I was utterly captivated by it, weeping openly at many moments. It was very funny. It touched my heart. It was a myth. Like... I don't think that there is a movie, it's like lightning in a bottle, the way that it actually perfectly captures what childhood feels like in the same way that something like Pete and Pete does. Um, I really loved it. Could not speak more highly of it. Um, there's a there's a scene in this movie, there's like a tableau in this movie where he rides his bike and there's like a broken fence uh, in the forest whenever they're going to use E.T.'s speak and spell thing to try and make contact with his people that I didn't even realize is something it's like a recurring image in my dreams like that specific tableau it's been in this movie has been in the back of my brain for my entire life where i dream that i'm in that exact place uh probably once every two or three years as a recurring dream like wow i loved it and i will say um part of the inspiration for us re-watching it recently was that uh cat signed up for nebula and we um watched lindsay ellis's video about it and in that video, she does include some of the, te- uh, not test footage, but the um, audition footage of Henry Thomas as Elliot. And he is so good at it. Uh, they have him ad lib uh, with an off screen adult actor who's playing like the government agent trying to convince Elliot to give up E.T. And he's so good in the footage that even in this improv scene, he convinces the government agent to, to stop pursuing E.T weeping openly and if that's what you mean by a terror to children you immediately hear spielberg say off screen kid you got the job like that's just how good henry thomas is even at that age oh i I should also say um shout out to isaac for um suggesting the killer suggesting that i watch it uh this friend of mine listens to the show occasionally shout out to isaac for suggesting the killer hello um, yeah, but that uh, other than our primary topic tonight, that's all that I have seen. Brandon, what have you been watching? Way too much stuff, and usually I would edit it down, but this is our last of the year blowout, so I'm just going to go for all of it. Three more hours. Three more <laughs> hours. Fuck it, why not? Uh, okay, so I'll, I'll start with the one I watched in the theater. Um, Godzilla Minus One, the new Japanese Godzilla film. Ooh. 
You know, I got a text from a friend today. Um, he and I have been trying. He, he moved back to Australia a couple years ago, and we've been trying to Zoom. And um, he did tell me that it's going to – he uh, saw that this weekend, and it's probably going to make his top five this year. It's in my top ten. It's fucking great. It's like nice. um, the only Godzilla movie I could think of that's made me cry in public, which, you know, kind of automatically bumps it to the top of most lists. It is definitely a throwback to the original 54 Godzilla film, which I think the three of us should watch soon. I might, I might move that up the watch list for us. Cause you know, you kind of get used to these things being fun, silly, like disposable kind of pro wrestling matchups where it's like Godzilla Mm -hmm. fights the metal version of himself or in the American films recently fights King Kong or, you know, like you kind of forget just how deeply sad and painful the original idea was. Yes. Uh, this new film is a 70th anniversary tribute to the original and dials the clock back to the time immediately after World War II. And Japan is just basically like rebuilding itself from scratch. And then this like unstoppable force is shaken awake by the nuclear attacks and sets them even further back. That's what the title minus one is referring to. Like they start at year zero and then Godzilla attacks and now they're like even further behind than year zero. Um, so to this movie's credit, it's not just about the widespread destruction of something like an atomic bomb or something like a gigantic lizard. Like usually Godzilla movies struggle a little bit with the drama in between the giant attack scenes. This one actually does a good job of like shrinking the drama down to just a few people. And in particular, a lot of like the fallout from the war was just about how soldiers are seen as like dispensable artillery and not necessarily human beings. So like a lot of it is healing with these survivors of the war who were basically treated like, you know, a bullet. They're like, I, I was supposed to be a kamikaze pilot that was supposed to kill myself for my nation. Um, our mission failed. So not only do I have to deal with the fact that my country is completely, or my city is completely wiped to the ground, but I also have to deal with the idea that I was seen as dispensable by my country. And like, my life is worthless now that like its purpose has been outlived. Like I survived the war. What do I do with my like life and how do I find value in it now? And yeah, there's like a melodrama to that. Um, It's kind of treated like an old school war drama from 70 years ago. And uh, the emotions still work, though. Like, I, I cried for, like, the, the last, like, 20 minutes of the movie. Maybe very teary-eyed. Yeah, it's very good. The Godzilla attacks are actually scary. It's impressively staged for a movie that's made for, like, $15 million. Um, yeah, liked it a lot. And then, uh, besides that, I've been watching a lot of movies um, on screeners, mostly through email links. And this is going to be my rapid fire. I'm going to go worst to best. I'm ready. I'm ready. Yeah, let's, let's do, do it. it. <laughs> Should like run a timer or something. <laughs> See how quickly <laughs> I can go through these. Uh, the worst, the killer. We already talked about it, so you know I can scratch that one off. Uh, second worst, but okay. Uh, Orlando, my political biography. It is a essay film about the Virginia Woolf novel Orlando. Um, it's by this philosopher who is viewing the book as representation of what trans life is supposed to be. He is both in awe of Virginia Woolf's writing and like feels that it has a lot to say about his own life, but also um, mad at her writing for not living up to 
modern class and gender politics in a way that I found a little academically shaky. You know, I didn't really fully get where he was coming from. But one cool thing he does is he doesn't make it all about himself. He has about two dozen trans performers who each read sections from Orlando's dialogue in the book and um, also talk about their lives. It's trans and non-binary people sort of dressing in half modern, half period costuming um, and doing this sort of like flippant shaking up of the status quo of this literary text. Very interesting. Doesn't completely work, but that's fine. Uh, Next up, Saltburn from Emerald Fennell. Uh, Very dumb trash. Feels a little bit like (laughs) skins mixed with, I don't know, Cruel Intentions and uh, Gossip Girl. I don't know. Like very aspirational, teen, horny kind of bullshit, but really beautifully shot. Kind of a confusing frame choice. It's shot in Academy Ratio 4.3, so it's very boxed in, even though it's set on these like very wide, beautiful expensive vistas it's kind of a weird choice there but looks great has a fun 2000s era soundtrack uh by the time it reaches its climactic twist it's pretty stupid like it it has no thoughts in its dumb beautiful mind which is fine i I don't think it needs to be held to a high standard it's only that she won oscars for a promising young woman that people are kind of holding it up to be like smart uh, or like holding up to a standard where it's supposed to be smart it really is just like a trashy beach read and uh works pretty fine on that level uh, next up, American Fiction, starring oh, I'm Jeffrey Wright. I'm excited about this one. Uh, another literary shakeup, kind of like Orlando, my political biography. Uh, in this one, Jeffrey Wright plays a author who um, teaches, you know, English classes at some very prestigious university, Ivy League style, and is frustrated that no one's buying his pitches for his books because he is a black author, and what white audiences want from black authors are these like tales of low income struggle. So as a troll job, he does a like bamboozled style or maybe the producer's style proposal for a book that is like flagrantly racist and uh, like leans into the worst stereotypes of what of like black pain that white aunts is like to consume to make themselves feel better. Um, and to his horror, that book gets picked up and wins a bunch of awards and gets on these like bestseller lists. And uh, it's just like a funny satire uh, making fun of the publishing industry, especially in that NPR world. Also, surprisingly, that's only half of it. The other half is this like weirdly complex family drama where there's a lot of like interpersonal relationships with his siblings and his mother that get very complicated. And uh, I don't know, it gives a little more room to breathe as like a real story and not just a full on satire. I think that might drag it down and make it not as good of a movie. But, you know, story is never my primary interest when we're watching stuff anyway. So. That's maybe just me talking and not an actual objective point of view. It's very good, though. If you like Jeffrey Wright, uh, it's a great showcase for him. And I sure do. Yeah, he's awesome. Like, I, I was just thinking, like, when was the last time he was a lead in something? I feel like he's always playing, like, villain of the week characters lately. And, you know, it's, it's nice to see him up front and center on a movie that feels like it was built on his personality. Yeah, I mean, you know, he was in both French Dispatch and um, Asteroid, Asteroid City. City playing against that you know but other than that you're right in that you don't see him doing much other than i mean i guess westworld probably kept him pretty busy for a while but maybe that's why he's back now yeah and in in the wes anderson movies he he's a scene stealer but he's also like swallowed up by these like large casts oh yeah he's part he's he's a part of a huge ensemble it is not a starring vehicle for him i can't remember the last time that he had one you're right probably the 90s i'm afraid to say um next up anatomy of a fall 
pretty good. You know, serious drama for adults. Most of it's in a courtroom. A lot of stuff about the ambiguity of truth and like uh, by the end, maybe like how you have to choose what the truth is to like make yourself feel better because you have to keep living life anyway. So like, you know, uh, if something's really upsetting to you and there's something really uncomfortable, maybe you could just tell yourself a little lie that makes life a little better. Yeah. Do you do you have a decision? Do you have do a I have a decision? My decision is it doesn't matter. Right. What really matters in the movie is that the prosecutor is the most punchable man to ever be on screen. I completely fucking agree. He drove me completely nuts. He is like the wickedest of prosecutors. Like he is not just doing his job. He is genuinely out to destroy this woman for all time over the flimsiest of evidence. Um, And and I get that when you're a prosecutor, that's your job. But like he is, I, I, by the end of it, I was like, I want that man in jail, actually. He was so hateable that I found it funny. Like he, he was like chewing the scenery as like a villainous, you know. Okay, so like kind of the whole point of the movie is like dissecting this marriage um, that had these like power plays that weren't entirely moral. But, you know, all marriages are a little bit of like trying to find the upper hand, you know, asserting yourself. It's supposed to be an equal partnership, but it never is. And like the little ways that it's not kind of dig into these like long term resentments. And then the horror of having those resentments and those arguments where you're kind of asserting yourself and, you know, fighting for your position, being picked apart in front of a large audience of people who are like judging you and how you handled yourself in those situations. That stuff's all very real and relatable with or without one of those two partners dying a horrific death, possibly murdered, possibly suicide. But then to have this like dastardly villain enter the frame and then specifically point out the very worst reading of everything you've ever done. Uh, it's almost like Bo is afraid level, like weighing your life and your decisions in like the least yes. favorable light, uh, yes. which I found a little funny, even though the situation's pretty grim. It's, it's a more or less a serious drama on the whole. Yeah. And I, I will also say I 100% agree with you that whether or not she did it is completely immaterial to the movie. I feel that way. I love the ambiguity of it. And it was like we were talking earlier about the killer. Ambiguity does not mean that it's it's flirting with the fence or whatever that's on the fence all the time. In this case, it's definitely not the case. And I, I wouldn't even ask if it weren't such a huge part of the movie's marketing. I don't know if it's misaimed marketing or what, but I, because that seed of having a decision at the end was planted by that URL appearing at the beginning of the movie – I ended up having to make a decision, I feel like. But I, I was curious, even though it is irrelevant, do you do you swing one way or the other? If I were to log on to didshedoit.com right now <laughs> and vote, choose my choice. Uh, I'm going to say, yeah, she killed him. And you know why? Because oh. I would have killed him too, because he was playing that goddamn Caribbean remix of PIMP over and over and over again while she was trying to have an interview. He deserved to get bludgeoned in the head and knocked over that railing. I, I don't think that that's a murderable offense. That's like a, that is, that is something that I would get revenge for as well. But that's like a, you know, flush the toilet when they're in the shower every day for the next month. We're kind of revenge. Not, not, but. Okay. Okay. Let's, let's, let's slow it down here. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> Lightning round over. We're like really digging in now. Oh, I'm ready. All right. Maybe what I'm saying is not that in real life, if someone was annoying me like that, that I would murder them. Oh, Maybe okay. what I'm saying is that these are make ups and this yeah. is like a moral quandary 
and within this like fictional thing with this not real person, they deserve death. I'm I'm sorry. We were both doing a bit, and then but we we hit we hit. A, I'm sorry. I hit a nerve in the way that <laughs> <laughs> I I don't think that you would. You're not a murderer, I, Brandon. <laughs> I feel like I'm reliving the midsummer argument again. Like midsummer, people are like, he didn't deserve to get burned alive. I'm like, yeah, he did. He's not real. He's like a representation of everything wrong with boyfriends. Yeah, he needs to be burned yeah. so we can all cathartically move on and feel better. He's the mega terrible boyfriend. As long as we are, are are pausing the lightning round for a second. When I was in the tenth grade, I was in a play, and because I went to a Christian school, it was a propagandistic evangelical play in which I played a prosecutor of the worst criminal you could be in this imagined future, a Christian. And this oh, person no. playing the prosecutor in this movie is playing him exactly as I did the prosecutor <laughs> of all Christians in that play in the 10th grade. Obviously oh better. I wasn't, uh, that, that play would never have won the Palme d'Or. But, um, you know, that, that is the amount of glee that he is bringing to this role. And it is, it is astonishing to watch. I will say, I think that there is... Again, like I said, it's ambiguous, but I would say I don't think that she did do it. I think that it was an accident. But again, that doesn't matter to how much you enjoy the movie unless you're kind of a pedant. Yeah, I think I think if you're distinguishing the difference between this and the killer, like what's good ambiguity versus what's non-productive ambiguity, like an ambiguity in what you're trying to say, uh, I would say uh, the killer and tar fall in that category. For me, uh, in this one, the ambiguity is less that way. It's more like the ambiguity is the point. The point is that there is no way to ever really know. And you kind of just have to make a choice at some point. So in, in that way, the did she do it.com <laughs> URL is kind of a funny reflection of the themes of the movie. Because it's like you have to choose, but you have no evidence to swing you fully one way or the other. And uh, that's kind of the position that the I won't say exactly who, but someone has to make that decision at some point in the movie, like what version of reality am I going to choose here? What makes me feel better? Yeah. All right. Sorry. Lightning round resume. <laughs> Next up, Eileen, a movie that Anne Hathaway described as Carol meets Reservoir Dogs, which I don't know if I fully what? agree with that, but definitely like a Carol style uh, lesbian flirtation in 1960s Massachusetts starring Thomas and McKenzie as a lonely prison worker. Um, who has all these like violent sexual fantasies. She's like kind of a chronic masturbator who lives in her own head and sort of drifts off and like imagines more eventful days than the slow days at work that she actually has. Um, and then into her life walks Anne Hathaway as the new prison therapist. And she's all made up kind of like Kate Blanchett and Carol. Like she's like very well put together and powerful and represents this like, entirely different way of being to this sort of like milk toast onlooker and then takes a shine on the onlooker and like takes her under her wing a little bit. And you feel like there's gonna be this like seedy romance between the two of them un under everyone else's noses. That is not where this movie goes. This movie goes into more of a femme fatale uh, noir direction. It's got a very 1940s style of noir filmmaking, maybe like noir paperback writing, that like kind of like crime story from like the cheaper end of that era. Despite its 60s setting, it is my very 1940s. Uh, I'd say the crime stuff in the last third doesn't necessarily work as well as the like lesbian fixation and like the intrusive violent thoughts of the first two thirds. But uh, as a weird character study of like a, a total weirdo, it, it at least worked better than Saltburn on that level. Um, and you know, 
both of the actors are very fun in it. And it was a good movie. It was like not great, but a fun little crime story. I, I do see that Shay Wiggum is in this. And there was something that I forgot to mention whenever we talked about Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning, which is that that man is born to play a police officer. He plays a retired cop in Eileen. That doesn't surprise me at all. Like that man was born to play law enforcement officers. That's such an insult, though. No, I uh, mean, look, he's a great actor, and I didn't say that he played them sympathetically. No, and in Eileen, he's like a very abusive alcoholic father. Uh, not abusive, like physically, most of the time that I remember. It's more like he assesses his daughter like she's less interesting than the dirt he walks on. He's like, "You're a non-person." Like if if it were were current times, he would call her an NPC, you know, like he just like talks about how she's nothing and she has nothing interesting going on in her life. And she kind of internalizes that until she sees this other opportunity, this other way of being in Anne Hathaway. Um, And she lets her like fantasies in her head get away from her during that fixation. So, yeah, he he does. He does a good drunk cop in this one, too. Uh, Next up, May, December by Todd Haynes, currently on Netflix. Within the opening week, dredged up a lot of weird discourse about what counts as camp and what counts as melodrama. I don't really want to weigh in on that. Uh, Kind of a fucked up but darkly fun TV movie version of a real-life tabloid story. Uh, Julianne Moore plays a woman who was married into her 30s and then had sex with a 12 or 13-year-old and had that child's children while she was in prison. And then after she got out, married him and raised the kids as like a nuclear family in Georgia. And Natalie Portman shows up in town to study her, to play her in a movie version of her life. And they do this kind of like persona style, like measuring up of each other. There's a lot of Bergman references in the movie, like some straight to the camera monologues, the way that Bergman always has. And there's a lot Mm -hmm. of like outdoor meals, which is pretty standard on those like Island Bergman movies. I also think that like the title feels Bergman-esque, if that May makes December, sense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and they could have called it Scenes from a Marriage, you know? Yeah, yeah, you know. But in practice, like in like form, it feels more like a lifetime TV movie. And I don't think that's unintentional. I think where people are getting tripped up on whether or not to call it camp is the same as Todd Haynes's Karen Carpenter biography, Superstar, which is made entirely with Barbie dolls. Uh, even though that is a deeply grim, fucked up movie, it is told in this sort of like tongue in cheek presentation that makes you very uncomfortable because you're not sure how seriously to take it at first. And yeah, I think he just expresses very uncomfortable ideas through these sort of like tongue in cheek presentations sometimes where there are things that make you laugh and then you feel terrible for laughing uh, once you start to like really dig into the like sincere melodrama of what's at the center of it. Um, yeah, it's very good. It's not like a revelation. I don't think it's one of his best movies, but a lot of other people think it's one of his best movies. So what do I know? Uh, next up, Dream Scenario, starring Nicolas Cage. Uh, he plays a milk toast nobody professor who uh, can't get his work published. So I'm hearing echoes of what I already said about Eileen in American Fiction. Except in this movie, Nicolas Cage just starts appearing in people's dreams. And I mean like millions of people just start dreaming of him unprompted in this sort of like magical sure realist this thing. isn't just about real life nicholas cage i mean i guess that's the joke of every one of his roles right like there's a whole andy uh andy sandberg bit about that <laughs> in this one uh it's very funny commentary i think on like modern fame and how a lot of people now especially as 
we're kind of like cynical older people looking at in on youth culture. When you look at like people who are famous from like YouTube or TikTok or something like that, you're like, that person is famous for doing nothing. They're just like famous for being. Uh, like they don't do anything. And that's what Nicolas Cage does in these dreams. He's just there while the dream's happening and he's very ineffectual. And uh, at first it makes him into like a meme. He's like a minor celebrity because he is just there every time people close their eyes. Uh, the movie kind of takes a weird turn when it starts commenting on cancel culture in a way that I feel like kind of distracts from its premise a little bit. But overall, very funny performance from him and a very funny movie from start to end. Even when the like things that's saying about fame sort of like stray from what I think the satire could have been, I think it could have been a little sharper. I was still laughing the entire time. I think it's a very funny movie. Almost as good as the director's previous film, Sick of Myself, which actually is one of the funniest comedies of this year. Uh, next up, I saw the new Aki Karazmaki movie, Fallen Leaves. If you've seen any Aki Karazmaki movies, which includes uh, The Match Factory Girl, Leningrad Cowboys Go America, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. It's a pretty prolific Finnish director who kind of makes the same movie over and over and over again. Like He kind of makes these like low-key rom-coms that have a interest in labor politics that does not yes. overwhelm the sort of like charming center story you know like the labor stuff's always kind of in the background or maybe it's just like a matter of fact part of life that these people are like barely getting by uh, week to week on their like tiny stipends but they still find love and passion and like room for each other in, the, in their tidy lives you know what's crazy about this one is that he like retired six years ago i can't remember the name of his last movie but it was good it, maybe the other side of the hope was the last one and uh, he came out of retirement to make this. And I was just laughing because it was like no different than anything he's made before. It just kind of felt like another one from him. So uh, I don't know. seems like he just came back because he enjoys making movies. And uh, he hadn't really missed a beat. It looked and felt exactly like a classic like Match Factory Girl or Strangers in Paradise. So I, I know that I should not have assumed this, but we watched Match Factory Girl. Was it for the podcast or was it for movie of the month movie of the month and yeah. the fact that you were telling me the director of that movie is still alive and making movies i thought that was absurd i just looked it up i thought it was unbelievable not absurd but i just looked it up and i cannot believe that movie came out in 1990 that feels like a movie of like 50 years ago not 30 years ago but i'm glad he's still at it all of his movies kind of look like an old Polaroid. Like they look yeah. vintage yeah, even they as do. they're coming out. And this one's shot on film and, you know, he doesn't like come about that continuation of his work in like a artificial way. It like he just made it the same way he would have made it in 1990 or in 1985. And it looks and feels exactly the same. But, you know, usually when you say like, oh, you've seen one, you've seen them all. Like that's like a bad thing. But in this case, like every time I watch one of his movies, it's like I could watch the same story over and over and over again, never get tired of it. I want to see them all. Uh, next up is The Taste of Things, which was the French submission for the Oscars consideration over Anatomy of a Fall. In case you don't know, countries submit their movies for Best Foreign Language Feature. Yeah. Or I guess that title's been changed to Best International Feature recently. Uh, a lot of controversy in the like film world that France chose this like crowd-pleasing movie about food and romance over the more complicated drama of Anatomy of a Fall, which probably will get nominated for other things like 
Sandra Huller or maybe the director or maybe like screenwriting. I don't know. It could happen. But um, I want to say I think they made the right choice. I really liked the crowd-pleasing melodrama about delicious food. <laughs> this is like a melodrama about Julia Pinoche is like the greatest cook in France and doesn't get the recognition that she should. Except that the person that she works for knows that she's the best and keeps like trying to marry her. And she says, no, I don't want to be a wife. I want to be your cook. And the way I will communicate my love for you is through my cooking. And there's just like 30, 40 minutes at a time, just beautiful photography of her hands making the most delicious food you've ever seen. And it's like honey to natural lighting. Uh, It's a fantastic movie. I really loved it. And in the interest of keeping things as short as possible, even though we've already gone long, I'll just say that Poor Things, the new Yorgos Lanthimos movie, is uh, yes, the best movie of the I year. I it so much. Oh, I'm so excited for that one. After watching eight Frankenstein movies this past Halloween season, I was more than prepared for this. Uh, and I still loved it more than I expected to. I love that. I'm so excited. Yeah, I just love his general like weirdo vibes his movies have. Like, I can't even explain it, you know? It just... It's almost like movies not made by an actual human, but made by someone acting like an actual human, not like a robot or anything. I don't know how to explain like his vibe. Like, I don't know. I think about Dogtooth a lot. <laughs> when I was so. writing about it, this was the best metaphor I could come up with, is that his movies always feel like he's kind of poking at a social norm, like it's a body he found in the woods. And he's like, what's that? And he keeps like mm-hmm. kind of trying to figure it out. <laughs> just like violent little jabs. And uh, the difference, I think, in poor things is that it's about someone learning how to be a human being and like learning how to live from scratch. Like basically growing up from a baby to an adult in like in like rapid time elapse. And uh, that way he gets to poke at every social norm he can. Uh, like their dead bodies he found in the woods. He's just running around poking at dead bodies in every direction. So it feels like bigger in scope. Than something like Dogtooth, which is like really about like parentage and um, yeah. you know the family unit in a very uncomfortable way. This is like about the whole of society and life on Earth, <laughs> with the same sort of morbid fascination from like an outsider perspective. Yeah, and it's very funny, very fucked up, and very beautiful. I was basically like that Gordon Ramsay meme. I was like, finally some good fucking food. <laughs> you know, the whole time. <laughs> Moon Garden from the from the inception of the idea was just a way to kind of utilize all the craft and all the and all the artistry that we grew up with that people aren't using anymore that we really love um, and that we miss from movies and it's things like puppeteering and practical effects and miniatures for set extensions and and like hand built sets. There's there's a very there's a certain aesthetic that's been lost in movies today just because it's cheaper cheaper quote unquote it's not actually for the most part. Um, to do everything on a green screen um, and to have actors, you know, have like one prop and then their co-star next to them and nothing else. And because of that, I feel like we've lost some kind of magic that is what got us excited about making movies in the first point. In the interest of catching up with best of the year potentials during list making season, there's always like a small list of like, it's like an island of misfit toys, you know, things that fell through the cracks that I want to catch up with in the last few weeks of the year. And uh, yeah, that was my attempt to add another title to my top 20 was us watching Moon Garden, which is a 
movie that premiered at film festivals last year got to roll out early 2023 not yet streaming anywhere for subscription it's still like only for rent uh and that's the kind of stuff that i wait on it's like uh this movie there's one called medusa deluxe that's like a single shot murder mystery set at a hairstyling competition that looks pretty interesting <laughs> uh there's one called Piaf that was like about this like fetishist who's really into horse girl stuff and uh also does like foley for movies i don't know like it's like weirdo stuff that is interesting to me but if i didn't catch it in a theater and it's still paid vod only you know i'm not gonna actually watch it until the last minute and i roped y'all into this as an attempt to um expand our knowledge of 2023 cinema um this is a very low budget film, Moon Garden. It is a family drama about a little girl who, while hearing her parents argue, falls downstairs trying to getting away from their, their shouting match and slips into a coma. And her two parents feel very guilty about this and uh, are sitting beside her bedside uh, trying to like talk her back into consciousness while she's in her coma. And most of the movie is in her dream world where she is also trying to navigate her way out of this medical condition. And we watch her go through this Alice in Wonderland style journey through her own subconscious. Um, she is both tormented by this demon that has a clattering set of dentures in the center of its blank face uh, that is very horrifying and stop motion in that like mad god kind of way. It's got this like almost 90s tool music video aesthetic to it. Um, that demon figure is apparently a traumatic memory she has of her hearing a knocking sound on the wall and asking her father what that sound is and her father saying oh it's probably your grandfather's dentures as like a throwaway joke uh and not realizing that he was like imprinting something horrifying in her mind that will haunt her forever and uh <laughs> she sort of imagines this demon with the clattering dentures and it becomes part of her imaginary play too right because right when she's she's doing her little imagination of like the princess in the forest where it's always night and never day like the grandpa's dentures are conceptualized there as like a little pair of chattering teeth that of course in her nightmare world are like a hit a, a monster mm -hmm. yeah and in in her playtime she uses that as a personification of bad feelings like the enemy in her mind is bad yeah. feelings she's definitely and got the usual like id you're playing out your feelings uh, thing that therapists love. And I guess on the other side of that, her like comforting feeling that she uh, has is this like, was it a hippopotamus stuffed toy that she carries around? Or is it a rhino? It's, it's a, a rhino. So yeah, yeah, she has like a rhino plushie that she carries around. as kind of like a, you know, like a baby blanket almost. And like she snuggles it for like courage and warmth. And um, in her dreams, that becomes this sort of kaiju sized defender. Uh, she like uses it as armor. She like uh, walks around in it like a mech suit, uh, you know, pushing the bad feelings back with her comforting rhino courage. And if the movie's like really saying anything, it, it first it feels like a domestic abuse PSA. Like, I was going to say it's got PSA vibes. <laughs> yeah, the acting between the human characters in the first 10 minutes are very concerning. It's like, oh God, the, the acting level is really bad in this. And huh. it feels like, there's going to be this message where it's like uh, this guy is abusive to his wife and she's trying to run away with the kid to get away from his like physical blows. And it's not really that it's more like 
the two of them being in a marriage that's not working. Uh, one because he's a workaholic who's kind of like a grump and doesn't spend enough time with his family. And then two, the wife is, um, I mean, I want to say like clinically depressed. Yes. And, you know, unable to perform being happy for her child at all times, which is like kind of bringing the child down a little bit. The two of them not making their marriage work and like having these fights in front of their kid are producing bad feelings that haunt her. Um, I don't think the drama is really all that well thought out or like it never gets past like a metaphorical service. These don't feel like real people to me. It's more about the dream world that the movie creates inside of the child's mind as she works through these bad feelings. And it's achieved in these sort of old fashioned practical effects. There's some 2D animation. There's a lot of like fog machines and gel lights, puppets, stop motion, video art, projectors. Uh, There's like time elapsed photography, Uh, just kind of creating this like surrealistic childlike world inside a child's imagination. And I guess where I want to start is I'm just going to list movies this reminded me of and let me know if I'm missing anything. But like Spankmeyer's Alice. Oh yeah. Paper House. Yes. Yep. Mirror Mask. Yep. Return to Oz. Return to Oz. Yep. Labyrinth, Pan's Labyrinth. I already mm-hmm. mentioned yes. Mad God. Uh Girl Asleep. Tideland. Oh my god, yes. I was also thinking of Tideland. The things that I was thinking about watching this were Tideland, Paper House, and Return to Oz. But I'm sorry, continue your, your recitation. I only got two more. Never Ending Story. Yes. And uh, Little Nemo's Adventures in Slumberland. Oh, yeah? Yep. Mm-hmm. That's a genre, right? Like, that's enough it movies to say that it's like a solid little canon list. I would say within that genre, I don't know that this is like an essential work. But as an addition to that small canon of like bad feelings inside a child's mind being worked out in this like fantasy space, uh, it achieves a lot on a small budget. And uh, I kind of appreciated it for that. Yeah. Yeah. What I really loved was that I completely agree. It belongs in that canon. And you're right that I don't think that this might be essential viewing for that canon, but I think it's a very triumphant uh, addition to it. I particularly loved, and the thing that I wanted to point out about Return to Oz, which I'm sure that y'all noticed, but maybe our uh, listeners wouldn't know, um, Return to Oz as a sequel is much more like the Oz books, which are in themselves Mm -hmm. kind of weird and occasionally creepy and surreal and scary. (laughs) But in order to make it technically a sequel to the, you know... Uh, 30s Wizard of Oz with Judy Garland, they have the same frame device where you're not really sure if what happens to Dorothy happened in her own mind or not. Like, that's never the case with any of the books. That's only the case with that 39 film. And then again, with the with Return to Oz, where they had to add that, despite it being in many ways truer to the books. Um, but the way that like, you know, when you're watching the beginning of Return to Oz and Dorothy encounters, you know, uh, various things that become part of her, I guess, what we could call dream play in Oz. Like, there's the device that, you know, is supposed to help cure her. And she's like, look, the nurse says, like, look, it kind of has a face. And how that becomes TikTok in her uh, return to Oz titular. That was at play here. And I liked that a lot, where you sort of get uh, just enough of an idea of what the narrative of her imagination play is with her toys for what happens in the dream sequence to or within her coma uh, nightmare to make sense without it needing to be exposited by a child, which I think was really clever. That's the part that reminded me a lot of Mirror Mask. Like, 
that movie starts off with like a very quick crash course of this like imaginary world this child is sketched out all over her room and uh she's from a family of circus performers so like all of the characters you will see refracted later in the movie through these like dream world versions of themselves are like quickly established in the first like five minutes of that movie and then you see them sort of like distorted through her mind uh as she's trying to get to her sick mother through this dream world um, it also reminded me of Mirror Mask in that it feels a little outdated. Like, yeah, this feels like the 90s. That is exactly what I said. Yes. Yeah. If this movie came out in 93, it would be a cult classic. Instead, it's 2023 and it will be, I believe, forgotten except by a small group of weirdos. And I'm proud to be in that group of weirdos. We need to champion this movie. <laughs> I really yeah, love this. We do kind of like there's some really great parts. But, like, I just found the family drama so uncompelling that I was just like, you know what? You should just stay in this weird world, kiddo. Enjoy it while you're here. <laughs> I also found it a little phony, but, like, in a forgivable way, like, it feels like a budgetary problem. But it also feels like, um, I mean, even, like, the mom's wig, you know? It's like, oh, if this movie yeah. had a little more money, it could have made her look a little more convincing on camera. But also, the movie knows that, and it's, like, very light on actual dialogue, and, like, there are long sequences that are just the dream imagery stuff, and, like, it knows that those are the goods. Yeah, I just am, like, I don't know, the child actor is the best actor in your movie, and it feels weird. I will say, uh, I'll, I'll come out as, I, I'll pull out the minority report on this one, the minority opinion, which is that I actually did find that compelling. There was something that was really interesting about the way that it opens with the mother trying to flee with Emma in the middle of the night in a way that it does trick you into thinking that there's some kind of abuse going on, especially when the father appears and he's under the garage light and it gives his like skin this sickly green hue that I thought was really interesting. Like he like he's supposed to be a monster. But then it subverts that expectation when although he definitely seems angry and he seems in that moment controlling when you see in other flashbacks he is a loving father he's not he is perhaps like you said a workaholic but he's not cruel he's not abusive he clearly loves his daughter and i think because i saw this after i saw anatomy of a fall which also sort of had this thing where you have uh, these two people in a relationship and one of them um, is a creative person and they feel hamstrung, even though her husband was awful in Anatomy of a Fall, it made me more sympathetic to him than maybe I would have been otherwise. Because it is that she has clinical depression, but she's very, she isn't dealing with it in a healthy way. She's dealing with it by withdrawing into, you know, um, sort of this uh, sort of selfishness, you know, in the way that she like talks to her daughter as if she's a little adult about things that the girl couldn't possibly comprehend and like complicating this girl's relationship with her father as a result of it, instead of getting the help that she needs. I found that very interesting um, more than y'all did, I guess. I guess both of their like sins as parents is just like not actually being present with her. Yeah. And the mom, the mom has like a physiological reason for that. Like her brain chemistry's off. So like, she'll just sleep for 12 hours straight in the middle of the day. And the dad's, you know, not present because he's so wrapped up in his work that he just like literally physically isn't present. Um, and the little girl is just kind of lonely, even though she's in constant contact with one of them at a time. 
Right. And and that was the thing that most stood out to me as an echo of Paper House. Because in that mm-hmm. movie, her father is not a bad person. He is really absent from her life in Paper House as well because of various reasons. I think in that, it's just that he's on a lot of business trips. Um, but in her Paper House world, her father is like this, you know, monstrous being that has these like sewn X's over his eyes trying to smash through the walls of the paper house with a sledgehammer. And the revelation, you know, part of the revelation of that is like, she blames her father for being absent in a way that turns him into a monster, but he's not as cruel as that internalization would lead you to believe in the actual narrative. And if we're going to keep doing connections, uh, I guess one of the reasons I'm kind of downplaying my reaction to this is as beautiful as the uh, dream world imagery is it did remind me a lot of one of my favorite directors working right now if not my favorite uh bertrand bandicho who did the wild boys and also um apocalypse after and also um after blue uh which are all set on these like fantastic planets where like the flora and fauna are like literally alive and like grabbing at you and everything's like smoke machines and these like highly artificial sets that are very alive and psychedelic uh, in the way that this one is. So I don't know, maybe I just like feel like I've already gotten like a better version of this style of like phantasmagoria than uh, what's presented here. Even though I thought this was very well achieved for what looked like a small budget. I guess the most clever device in the fantastic dream world is the radio, this like little transistor radio the child holds in her hand where her parents are speaking to her in her coma state and trying to like guide her back into consciousness. And she's getting those signals either weakly or strongly, depending on her current mood as she like avoids her bad feelings monsters. And, um, that both is like an interesting, like imaginative device on like what hearing someone's voice while you're like kind of half awake, mostly unconscious would be like, uh, but also lends a kind of eerie tone to the dialogue. Like I really like them singing like Harry Nielsen songs to her yeah, as like <laughs> just sort of empty babble almost like they're like singing lullabies to a child that can't hear them sing. Um, and it is very comforting and eerie. So I thought that device was very smart. Um, I just overall couldn't get... Okay, here's here's what's really unfair. <laughs> it's unfair to watch any movie where you're like, I'm watching this for the purpose of this is going to be one of the best movies of the year. Or is this... I'm comparing this against something else uh, to see which is better. You know, like... Yeah. The whole frame rate of expectation where I'm like coming into this, like, I want this to be great and I need it to be great in comparison to 20 other movies I'm trying to like rank on a list or even in, within a genre I'm going I'm trying to rank it against the greats in its the greats across time and it's like little subgenre of dreamscape movies uh about little children's imaginations like a totally unfair frame for watching movies whereas if I was just discussing this in a void on its own merits I might be um singling out what's great about it more than I am like, well, this didn't exactly work or this feels a little dated or this other director does a better version of this, etc. Yeah. Cause I mean, the style is really cool. It is. There's a lot of really cool art stuff going on here. 
And, you know, it's got a lot of jump scares that are very effective. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes you feel like a scared child. Uh, it yeah. also just had me saying, like, what the fuck <laughs> every few minutes, which is always a great feeling with these, like, kind of weirdo, low-budget movies. Like, I- I'd like to be taken off guard by stuff like this. Yeah, it- I just really think I am at my worst tendencies as an audience uh, in this last month of the year, where I'm, I'm being more picky and comparative than I would be if I were watching this in January or February, which would feel a lot lower stakes where it doesn't have to be perfect. It could just be good and interesting. One of the trailers, I I, I don't normally watch trailers for things that we are going to watch for um, the podcast. I try to avoid trailers as much as possible other than going to see them. Like I want to get to the movies early and see the trailers they show there, but I don't like normally go to YouTube and watch a a trailer for a movie that we're going to talk about or watch or anything. Um, cause I like to go in as blind as possible. I like to be as surprised as possible, but whenever I was trying to determine whether we would watch the killer or this, when my friend came over the other night, I was like, here, let's watch a trailer for it. And one of the pull quotes on it was that this was, um, like mad God with heart, which I, I, I think I that you would probably argue that mad God already has heart, but I did wonder what you would think about that statement. Otherwise, I think that the best version of what this movie could have been if the drama really worked for me and didn't feel phony, mm-hmm. it would have been that mad God. I felt had a beating heart at its center. It's just a rotten one. It is rotten, <laughs> but it's like, um, it's more of like a metatextual heart and it feels maybe it's unfair to bring that to that movie as well. But like the story of it being made over decades and having that pause in the center where there's like, this creative figure who is sending his little soldiers out in the world and watching them die. Like it had me thinking about Phil Tippett and like the persistence mm-hmm. of making that art project over the years where like, I did feel emotional emotions watching mad God. I don't know that I ever got caught up in the emotions of this piece unless like scared as an emotion. Cause the, uh, it chattering is. teeth monster jumping out from behind surfaces with like a loud music sting. Like, was upsetting you know uh so i got the bad feelings sometimes from this movie but i didn't get the like family melodrama of like this hurt child that these parents were like trying to nurse back to health and like working through their own feelings of guilt for like scaring her down the stairs in the first place you know it never really hit me in the feels and i I hate to say but mad god did feel more emotional to me um even though it's not a movie um that's overtly emotional um and dramatic it's it's almost like pure art with no narrative you know yeah i i think that that is what you know mad god is pure art with no narrative and i think that this one i did enjoy it more personally um not just because you know it wasn't about oh i care about the characters in the case of the parents or even that i was ever really scared on behalf of this little girl because it wasn't you know uh, I, I never really felt like she was in danger, danger, but it was. Oh, really? More... I wasn't sure at the end if she was going to die or not. Okay, I. This was one of the movies that did not convince me that the child was in peril, but uh, you know, I don't need that though. At the same time, but if if it did that for you, you know, no, no shame. I love that it did, but uh, for her, you know, I kind of you kind of just know that at the end, like Dorothy Gale, like the girl from paper house, like Bastion Balthazar books and the never ending story that it's going to turn out all right for them in the end, no matter how scary the journey is. And one of the things that we've talked about when we talk about this sort of mini canon in the past is that 
a lot of the movies that we're talking about are from the 80s because that was a period of time in which filmmakers were not afraid to scare children more. Um, they've really pulled back on it where, you know, Paper House is from the 80s, Return to Oz is from the 80s. Pan's Labyrinth is probably the, the most recent addition to this canon prior to this movie. And, and that's because it came from like outside of the American uh, Hollywood system, I would think. I, I think that Pan's Labyrinth probably is not maybe for a child audience, no. but that could just be like, you know, me looking at the films that I saw from the decade in which I was born and saw in the decade in which I grew up and then viewing Pan's Labyrinth as something that came out when I was in college and, you know, the changing of sensibilities. Whereas this movie, I think, would be very in line with all of those. And that I think that this movie is uh, and here I'll go ahead and maybe that this is why I found the parents more compelling. Maybe that story is dumbed down <laughs> too much for yeah. y'all to enjoy it because it is supposed to be something that can be clearly understood by a child. And maybe that's why I enjoyed it more. I think you're right. Actually. I think I'm looking yeah. at this from an adult perspective and not like this is a child's movie that didn't even occur to me once. I, yeah. And I might also be looking at this from a, my family was messed up perspective. So none of this seems real. <laughs> this seems fake. But if you're a child looking at like your parents and like their faults, especially yeah. if, you're, if your parents are in a marriage that should end for your benefit, because so, some parents stay together for their kid, quote unquote, when they're really doing damage, which I think is like the main drama of this movie is like them yeah. sticking together is not helping, you know? So a child looking at their parents and like, these are the things that you do that make me feel bad. Like in that way, the drama is pretty realistic, but only through that one perspective. Uh, it, it just never occurred to me that this would be a movie you would watch with kids. <laughs> like this yeah. is something I watched, like I want to sit down and watch something psychedelic and upsetting, which I think it worked on that level too. But it just never occurred to me that um, I would like throw it on for my eight year old best buddy to watch next to me. I mean, this is this is this is a movie that I think you know it is for children. Um, no, I think you're it's right. A horror movie for kids, just like Return to Oz was. I would say the Neverending Story has scary parts, but I don't think that it's ever it, the it's the darkness depressing. is not as pervasive. Yes, it's it's a depressive movie. Although I find it very joyful. It was my favorite movie of my childhood, along with Return to Oz. Yeah, I was a big Wizard of Oz fan, and that definitely scared some kids as well. So I think Laika does a good job of keeping that tradition alive, too. Oh, my God. Um, Coraline. You know, and Coraline. Coraline, Paranorman, Kubo and the Two Strings is very fucked up. Yeah. Yeah. Makes me cry every time. But I, you know, I, I'm really glad that you... It seems like you put this one forward and attempt to juke the stats initially. And now upon this rewatch, maybe you don't have as strong positive feelings for it. I wasn't juking the stats. I was like, there are a few movies yeah, I should watch before the I year's was up. Say, you hadn't seen it. Yeah. Like, oh, okay. All right. for I all misunderstood. Of I'm trying to scratch it off my watch list. This was a group first watch. Which I is like exciting. that this podcast is becoming like a competitive game. <laughs> like, I'm trying, like we're trying to like manipulate some outcome on a list. Uh, I really we don't joke think about that it. Way. I was gonna say we joke about it a lot, but I don't actually know if we do that. Like, I think that's more of a joke at this point. I mean, yeah, I will say last year, it. at last year, like we were getting close to list making time, and 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 the year before as well. If I make you watch something like Neptune Frost or Satan, 
the last week of the year, it's because it's my favorite movie I've seen all year and I've had no one to talk to about it. Well, so I, I need someone to talk about it. It's movies that I already wanted to see. Right. So right. it's not, it's not too like, if we didn't like them, we wouldn't put them on the list, I guess. Yeah, you you've definitely. I mean, I think there have been times where you were like, "I want to, I, I want everyone to watch this movie," and it was a new release, and I still didn't didn't put it there. Right, which is not really my goal. It's more like I want someone to talk it out with me because I'm excited by the ideas, and I need to hear them like bounce back yes. on me. Mad God, you know, did not work for you two as well as it worked for the other crew. Oh no, I liked Mad God. It's yeah, so but. But it wasn't it wasn't on your like best of the year list the way yeah. it was with the other half of the crew. We were pretty clearly split. Where like the uh, the Swamp Flicks podcast and the Lanyap Swamp Flicks podcast were Mad God skeptical versus Mad God uh, enthusiastic. You know, I think Boomer and I were just feeling soft last year. <laughs> Is the thing I was feeling very soft. I was having a soft year. I think that I did end up putting a soft movie at number one. It was Marcel, I believe. Yeah, we yeah. both put Marcel so, as number one. And it's very uncommon that it's not a horror movie that's my number one. But Okay, so it's pretty clear right now that like where we stand on this movie. Like I liked it. Yeah, I enjoyed it. It sounds like Boomer liked it more than either of us. Oh, I, yeah, yeah, I loved it. This is going on my list this year for that's sure. Awesome. I'm glad yeah. that I brought it up. Yeah, it might end up on my list, but like I think... As far as, like, messed up kid horror of the year, I like Skinner Rink more, even though it's not necessarily in the same category in mini genre, but, you know, bad vibes, kid horror. But that's not to say I did not enjoy this. Well, let's let's juke the stats. If, if this is the game we're playing, let's get on an even playing field here. What are the movies from this year you think people should watch before we do our, like, list making ritual what's like unmissable from this year that you think people might have missed i think it min for sure Anise Min, like, yeah i yeah i watched that and i was like oh my god this movie is so good i've said it before and i'll say it again the cow who sang a song into the future um i okay. really really yeah, loved it it touched me with all my heart and ali it is on hoopla still oh, for free with your library card so um I, i'm gonna speak strongly on behalf of leonore will never die as well uh, others that people probably have seen and maybe just didn't love as much, things like Past Lives, Bo is Afraid. I'll also speak out in favor of, of Ennisman. Um, they cloned Tyrone, which we talked about earlier. Brandon, I'm going to go ahead and say you probably would say smoking causes coughing. Yeah. I mean, I'll echo everything you just said except Past Lives, but... <laughs> I really liked No One Will Save You. I think James and Hannah liked uh, Past Lives more than I did. So you have some like fighters in that corner. All right. I'm I'm really hoping that Megan makes like an invisible man style uh a coup. coup <laughs> and it ends up top top of the list just because like everybody's like, yeah, we all enjoy it. I want to see it so bad. Megan's fun. I still have not seen it yet. Allie, the time is now. Collide with I Destiny. I know. I think I told y'all, like when I was going to go see it in theaters, like I made Thomas choose Megan or Skin Marink, and he chose Skin Marink. So I like Megan better than Skin and Marink. <laughs> Yeah, I can't imagine that. I often feel like I'm doing like optometristic criticism. It's like an either or choice at all times that like I have to rank things to understand yeah. what's good. <laughs> if that's the binary, Megan or Skin and Marink, I'm going Megan. Yeah. <laughs> Would you rather? I do like the uh, earlier lists uh, 
where we would watch fewer movies in common, especially in like the pre-podcast era, the first couple of years of the website. Yeah. Where like stuff like The Boy or Krampus <laughs> or Pee-wee's Next Adventure, whatever that third one was called, yeah. Pee-wee's Big Holiday, like would make our top 10 Great list one. of the year. Those are beautiful times. It is bananas that The Boy made his way onto its list. Considering I love that. that. We all, yeah. I, 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 has it been long enough? Can we just reveal what it is? Yeah. Uh, I haven't seen it yet. Oh, damn. Oh, okay. All right. So no, you can't. Brahms's secret remains guarded another year. Oh. Uh, <laughs> it's a very specific flavor of that thing I like. Okay, good. I will watch it. You know, although it was a direct-to-video feature, and it was one that a lot of people on the internet didn't love, and the ending, I understand, it it does almost go into a Hulu Into the Dark ending, but I think that it's better than that, in my opinion, was uh, There's Something Wrong with the Children. I don't know if either of you saw that one. Uh, I did not. Brittany did. What were her thoughts? I think she thought it was fine. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, we already talked about Anatomy of a Fall. If we're going to put a binary on it, where if you're going to watch one really moody, made-for-adults, eat-your-vegetables movie this year, I would say Anatomy of a Fall over Master Gardener for sure. Although Master Gardener had its moments. I would say Priscilla is the best movie in that category from this year. Sophia oh, Coppola okay. Film. See, I, I just don't think of anything that she does as a vegetables movie. That is true. It's just like a movie about boredom and about isolation. So it sounds grueling, but it is also like one of the best movies of the year and feels like ecstatic and, you know. Yeah. I'm a little curious to see what happens with Infinity Pool because I'm, I'm also looking at like the bottom of my list for this year of things. The absolute worst thing that I saw that was a new release this year was that Power Rangers special. <laughs> With 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 you know all of the the cast, and then right above it, I've got like Ant Man, Thanksgiving, Aporia, which was so boring. Uh, the Flash, they're all down there at the bottom, along with Infinity Pool, which again was a movie that came out long enough ago that it's not going to benefit from recency bias when people make their lists, but which I seem to dislike much more than anybody else did. I really like it. I think it's very fun. Mia Goth is insanely entertaining in that movie. I don't disagree. I, I think what I said at the time was that it was like perfectly acted, beautifully shot, you know, extremely well, like sound edited. It just left me cold, just cold. I, I think cold it had me. a poor timing where there were so many like eat the rich media, like headline grabbers at that time. So it was like, white lotus and the menu and triangle of sadness and stuff like that it came at the tail end of that little wave and uh i don't think the movie is fully about that i think it's about nepotism guilt and like a writer hating himself for having writer's block even though he has every opportunity in the world the fact that he's like a mediocre talent just eats at him which is a very funny story for brandon cronenberg to tell and i think the movie is like really amusing in that context Especially mm. the way he punishes himself is by making up a dominatrix that like whips him in the streets <laughs> while she eats fried chicken and champagne on a car hood. Uh, I think that movie's hilarious. Um, if I'm going to throw out a couple besides Priscilla, poor things, obviously everyone's going to go see that no matter what. I think the Royal Hotel is very overlooked. Uh, it reminded me a lot of the themes of Alex Garland's Men, which is a movie we all liked. Um, but yes. set up in a slightly more realistic scenario, but feels just as wild and jarring and like upsetting. 
it's a little more grounded in the real world, and I think its themes come through a lot stronger. But it's in it's in the same register, uh, and I, th- I think is really intense as like a thriller. And I really liked a lot of like tokusatsu movies, like the new Godzilla I already mentioned. I really liked the new Ultraman movie. The new Common Rider film was very good. Uh, kind of in the same category, uh, Smoking Causes Coughing, which was like a Power Rangers spoof, and you already mentioned. Um, and also the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles film, Mutant Mayhem. Very fun. Maybe the best score of Trent Reznor's career as a like film composer. I love that. Huh. You know, if I can add one more, I think uh, Blind Willow Sleeping Woman might. Yeah, that was very good. Here. I liked that a lot. Yeah. All right. That's way too many movies. No one's going to watch all that. <laughs> Our biggest fans, well. Except me. I've seen everything mentioned except um, there's something wrong with the children. So I guess that's my homework after this conversation. Yeah, I was going to say, I have not seen nearly enough movies from this year, but I'm excited. It's going to be a good holiday time. If you had to put a number on the number of films from 2023 you've seen so far, what would be your best guess? Oh, um, I'm going to be honest and say maybe like five holy shit unfortunately yeah okay. i know i've been catching up from last year even okay here, here's my challenge for you next year don't catch up start from scratch, <laughs> start from scratch. <laughs> and actually watch movies as they come out you know I will. 2023 is dead to you on january 1st catch up with 2024 as it's happening all right something you just said brandon did you see leonore will never die no, no, I, I missed that one. Forgot. I'm sorry. Okay, okay, that that is that is definitely one I would recommend. Um, I am counting well. that one as 2022, just so I don't have another thing on my plate. I apologize. Oh, it's dead for to that. you. It was dead to you as of January first. That's what this I'm year. saying. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. You know what I do with movies like that, where I I feel like I missed my window. I throw them on my 7,000 film letterbox watch list that I shuffle when I don't know what to watch, and uh, if it happens, it happens. You know. Godspeed. Godspeed, Leonore. There's a literal century plus of movies to catch up with. I don't need to see everything that came out this year. I'll be okay. And to be honest, my favorite stuff, like my entire top 20, is either something I saw in theaters or something we discussed on a podcast. So me catching up with this stuff on streaming is not necessarily helping. It's just making me feel tired. It is funny that um, my number this year, I can can narrow it down because I have my a document where I keep track of everything. I have seen 36 films and I'm still going to have like a top 18, <laughs> like, you know, uh, over half of them were, were worth it to me to end up on a list. Some of them will probably end up getting like, you know, uh, honorable mentions like magic mix last dance, <laughs> but you know, I still think that I saw this was a good year. This was a good year. I think I'm approaching a hundred for the year right now. I'm in the nineties. I'm always so impressed. Like twice <laughs> yeah. a month, like twice a week is so much. Yeah. It's mostly film festivals. And then just like every week, I'm like, what's in theaters? What's new? You know, I like to get out of the house. It's the cheapest way to do that. A lot of people will tell you that movies are an expensive hobby. I think that's insane. I can't name something else that you can do outside of your house for $8 for two hours. Even like a drink at a bar costs me more. Yeah. And we got our movie passes. Right. <laughs> From her bad TV show, she liked your porn films. She didn't like me. In my dreams, there were.
they didn't realize 